Hey, uh, so we, we are excited that we are continuing on in the sermon. Um, it's kind of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of an interesting reality. Like we've been walking through it for nine or so weeks. We took a break last week for our anniversary Sunday. We're back in it for a week, and then we'll, again, we'll take another break for Advent. But um, as, we, as we go back into the Sermon on the Mount, let me ask you a question that I think um, is really just jumping off the page at us today. What do you do when someone wounds you? What do you do when someone offends you? Uh, when someone vehemently disagrees with you, when someone insults you, when they prejudge you, when they maybe wound you with their words, when they unfairly judge you, when they ask too much of you, or when they demand more than you're willing to offer. What do you do? What happens on the inside? For me, I'm just going to be real, real candid with you. I just start to seize up. I'm like, nope, mm-mm. I'm going to tell you right now, nope. I'm easy to go to a no, and this is a a very corrective passage for us today to go, why are we so easy to run to a no? These are the questions which Jesus is going to cause us to wrestle with as really he helps us understand uh, the place from which we should be answering and acting in the kingdom of God for people that are called to flourish inside of God's kingdom. What does that look like? How do we react when all these things come against us, um, I'll say this. Jesus is not interested in just our answer to these things. He's also not interested in us just coming up with a new um, law to replace the old law. Instead, he is interested in remaking us to be the kind of people that react when these things happen in a wholly different and new way. He could care less about us um, reacting to these things in the right way because we know that they're the right thing to do. That would be called duty. And instead, he wants to remake our hearts so that it is a delight to react in these ways, to honor God inside of his kingdom, as if to say he's remade our heart, and it's just a natural way that we will then react to wounds and insults and offense. That's the invitation today that Jesus is inviting us into. Um, I'll remind you where we are in the sermon. We are now on the fifth of six. You have heard it says, but I, or you have heard it said, but I tell you. These sayings that he's, he's truly inviting us to think differently. And, and really, it's the, the different invitation is, how do you define your righteousness? Because if you remember, he is here telling us, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And what have the Pharisees done? They've taken good things and made them the whole thing. And we have done very similar things in our own hearts. So he is not, though, establishing a new law of don't do this do that. Don't, um, don't commit adultery, which is we would all agree to. And he's also not saying, and so therefore do not also lust. He's then saying, don't commit adultery. And because we know that adultery is also lust, we're guilty of adultery. He is truly indebting all of us to a standard with, with which we didn't even know we were called to live. And so he's inviting us, he's illuminating this new standard that's way higher than just don't do that. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Instead, there is an issue of our hearts that he is calling us to remake, or he is remaking for us. This is not about laws. This is truly about our hearts. This is not about outward obedience. This is about a remaking of our heart to be longing and be affectionate towards God himself. 
So perhaps more than any saying so far, I think this is probably the most challenging. Next time, I would say next week, but we're going to take a break, and then the new year, we're going to be picking up on like basically part two of Love Your Enemies. This is part one that I'm just entitling Justice and Generosity. Like what will we do with our understanding of justice, and how does that relate to generosity in our hearts? Because that's what's coming out of us, so that he is challenging us to understand and really ask this question of ourselves, will I be a vigilante with justice and try to maintain right and wrong on my own in the here and now, or will I have a posture of generosity towards those who wound and offend and hurt me? Those two things are not incompatible, but really are directly related. So as Jesus does this, as he invites us into this new standard of righteousness, to not depend on right and wrong, but to remake our hearts as people lovingly affectionate towards God, he is going to compare two systems of justice before us. The first system of justice is, if I could say it right, retributive. I should have put that on the Google Translate. Retributive, it's retribution, right? That's the world standard of justice. What is your standard of justice? This is a retributive system that we're in in America, and they base it on uh, the Levitical law, the Torah, the, the Bible, right? And that is a payment for wrongdoing. It's not really interested in rehabilitation. It is interested in punishment for wrongdoing. And again, this comes right out of the Old Testament where the world, and especially our country, is based on retributive justice. You have done wrong, you must pay for your sins. This comes right out of Leviticus chapter 21. It says this, If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture. Well, that's, that's interesting. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has, a, uh, he has given a person, it shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, a.k.a. give you not only the animal that you just killed, but also another one. Because you lost something, now I must lose something. You shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. In our country, this is like the baseline of justice is retributive or payment for wrongdoing. It is payback for the things that we have done wrong. Now, the purpose of the law for the Old Testament was to not just say you can take a tooth for a tooth, but to also say you can only take a tooth for a tooth. The law was there to rein in vengeance, personal vendettas, and evils done against one another. So this isn't like an allowance that you must take a tooth for a tooth. This is to say you can only take a tooth for a tooth. Now we see this in our own families. When your, when your kids start fighting, right? When they start play fighting, what's the first thing that usually comes out of your mouth? Like you kind of let it go and then all of a sudden you, see, you can kind of see it get into the next level and you usually say something like, hey, y'all better quit before somebody gets hurt. And we usually say something like that. Why do we say y'all better quit before somebody gets hurt? Because we know what's in their heart. Vengeance. We know that when somebody punches them in the arm, it's only a matter of time before the arm is really not the, the target anymore. It's the face. Because what you've done to me, I'm going to get back on you even more. I can tell you that I am the worst at this in my own home. My kids don't want to play wrestle with me because if you get me, I'm going to get you twice. It's not fair. And I'm older than them if you haven't figured that out and stronger it's not good. But nonetheless, this is what the law is doing. It is limiting vengeance. So, so we know this is in our hearts. 
And so that's why we say that to our kids, y'all better quit before something gets out of hand because it is in our heart to escalate violence. And so the law was given to limit what we can pay somebody for a wrong done to us. Otherwise, we would have Hatfield and McCoys, and Hatfield and McCoys would just be like the Smiths and the Joneses. It would be just normal. But the law was there to rein in evil so that we wouldn't continue this spiral of, of, of justice and vengeance. So when the Pharisees are here and they're going, yeah, yeah, I do eye for an eye, right? I do tooth for a tooth. I don't take more than what was taken from me. Jesus is looking at that and going, okay, that's fine. That's how the world does things. That's even how the law has, has explained that we should live. But that is not how the kingdom of God actually works. That's not God's ultimate design. And that's what he's come to further explain to them through this saying today. Again, he is undercutting the low standard of righteousness of going, well, I don't take more than I should. When somebody takes from me, I don't take more than I should. And he's looking at us and going, that has never been what my heart has been about. So though the law limited vengeance, it was the standard also of acceptable payback. And what God is inviting us into today What he is truly impressing upon all of our hearts is that God's kingdom is different. It has a different baseline of righteousness more than just right and wrong. And he is inviting us into a completely different game, a completely different lens through which we should see justice. It's no longer retributive that I'm going to pay you back. Ooh, you did that to me? Mm, I'm going to get you. It's no longer that. That that, I'll, I'll say this more, but like that is a prison. That is a place where God's people go to rot and die. And I say those things very, um, like, purposefully. That's not a place for God's people to, 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 to flourish and to thrive. Instead, there is something far greater. And what is the far greater? And I think this is God's invitation for us today. is not to live on a, on a system, both relationally um, and judicially, as a place where we would try to find retribution. But instead, there's an invitation here to trust God for divine justice. So we can live in retributive justice, or we can live in Jesus' kingdom, which is based on divine justice. What is divine justice? It is trusting God to be God. It is trusting God at his word when he said, vengeance is mine. Now, we'll work through that here in a little bit. But this is what Jesus says, and it's very difficult. If you read this at face value, I'm going to tell you right now, this is hard stuff. Because Jesus explains it like this in verse 39. He says, you've heard it said that it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Huh? You don't want me to resist the one who is evil, that's going to take more from me, that's going to um, exact more from me than what I gave to them. This is a very difficult passage to understand, and so to understand it, we need to really draw out what Jesus is drawing out. He uses four illustrations to help us understand what he means by do not resist the one who is evil. But first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Historically, over time, people have used that little, little uh, sentence, do not resist the one who is evil, to start to uh, justify some, some, con- some, some concepts that are out of context. First, that a nation should never engage in war. Um, that's something that historically, they'll go to Jesus' words right here, that you should not resist the one who is evil to say, see there, there's evil on the earth, and, and Jesus is saying himself, we should not resist that evil. 
that would be out of context because you see all throughout the scriptures that there is, it even says in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for war. So it also, an out of context application to this is not just that a nation should engage in war, but that you should not defend yourself or back the blue, like back the police. Because after all, if you should not, um, if you should not resist the one who is evil, just let evil run amok and don't defend yourself. That is not a proper application either. It's also not a proper application for you to just stay in an abusive relationship because after all, you should not resist the one who is evil. No, that's not true either. You should realize that you are made in the image of God, that we are made in the image of God at the baseline, whether or not you're a Christian or not, and therefore abuse is absolutely heinous in God's sight. So that can't mean that. It also cannot mean that we should not stand up for others who cannot stand up for themselves. You see, that's an entire reason to back the blue. That's an entire reason to, to get behind a government. That, that, that's the best part of government, that it creates systems that can, for people that cannot create those things for themselves. That's why you have a military. That's why you have governmental systems. That's why we can back the blue in these ways, to defend and care for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, for the orphan, for the widow, for all those on the earth, literally, that cannot do it for themselves. This is, this is not what Jesus intends when he says this. Instead, Jesus is going to use, again, four illustrations to help us understand that personal vendettas, what has been done to you, O Christian. This is only a word for Christians because it is about a sermon on the mount for people that are in the kingdom, desire to flourish in the kingdom. What happens, again, when someone wounds us? This is truly about, not about getting personal vendettas or, or coming to the defense of every offense in a life for us. Instead, that is a, a, a place of retributive justice, and it is a place where we will rot away in the kingdom of God, which is marked for mercy and forgiveness. So each illustration helps us to see this, this idea of do not resist the one who is evil even more and, and more. And so he says this. Here's illustration one. Let's walk through them one by one, and then we'll uh, give some application for us today, right? So I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Anybody been slapped? Anybody been backhanded? Anybody been sucker punched like maybe in their front yard when they were seventh grade? Yeah, some dude gets out of his black Bronco. I'm out in my front yard, like, waiting for Michael Pekka's mom to come and pick him up. And I'm on the curb, and some dude turns the corner, jumps out of the black Bronco, and just whack right here across the jaw. And I read this. I didn't read this then. Um, I instead remembered that black Bronco and found it many months later and followed it home and called the police. Would Jesus be okay with that? I don't know, but I did it. Nonetheless, I read these words today and I think about my seventh grade self from the high schooler that was drunk and punched me in the mouth that day and I, and I go, this is absolutely outrageous that you don't want me to take vengeance, that you don't want me to have payback. If you've been backhanded, that's the idea here because he says, if you've been slapped on the right cheek, if you're right-handed and you slap someone else on the right cheek, it's a backhand, and when you backhand, it's an absolute sign, not just of, of punishment, but of disrespect. And so now Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, once you've gotten hit with your right cheek, with the backhand of another, don't fight back. Offer him the other also, your left, so they can slap you again with the open hand. 
this is outrageous to me. As someone who has, has truly been, I've even been backhanded. I won't tell you that story, but I've been backhanded too. This is outrageous to me, right? And that nonetheless, God is inviting us to not resist this person, um, but offer more of yourself for further disrespect. Fascinating that Jesus would invite us into these waters, into his kingdom. And this is, again, this is God's design for our flourishing Number two, this second illustration in verse 40, right? Not just for your personal injury, but now even further onto judgment. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So this idea of a tunic and a cloak would be like an undershirt. Like somehow you may have been um, in a bedding circumstance or you, you put down your undershirt, your tunic, as a down payment for, someone, for something, if, if you did that, like, it's up to them. They can come and get your tunic, according to Jewish law. But it is never okay, according to Jewish law in Exodus 22, it is never okay to take someone else's cloak because the cloak would be the outer garment. Number one, it would have been, would have been more expensive. But number two, it doubled on a cool night as a blanket. If you don't believe me, go read it in Exodus 22 again. It would have doubled, and it was off limits because it was doubly valuable, not just in outerwear, but also as your covering at night. And Jesus is saying, don't just give them your undershirt, your tunic, but also your cloak. Though they may have some sort of right to your tunic, they never have a right to your cloak. Give that to them anyways. As so we think like, okay, but if I'm sued in court, there's no way that I'm going to do that. And Jesus is inviting us into a new standard and a new understanding of justice. But it's not just in the courtroom, because with this idea of suing someone could also just be someone being critical of you, someone prejudging you, someone criticizing, judging, finding fault, showing prejudice against you. So again, I asked you, what do you do when you're unfairly criticized? For Jesus, this idea of do not resisting means to break free from self defense, to not defend your reputation or what is yours. God commands us, not just invites us, God commands us to hold loosely that which we own, that which no one else has a right to, especially our pride, especially our desire to be right and to show them that they're wrong, even, after, even if they come after us in the court of law. So one of my favorite verses, because it's so scandalous, is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, where Paul is giving distinct guidelines for how Christians, Christians should not be suing one another in court. And he says this in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 6. It's amazing. It's, it's fascinating to me. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You're already lost. You can't win in court if you're lost with the Lord. He says, why not? Why why not rather suffer wrong? Boy, that's a, that's a tough word, Paul. That's a tough word, Jesus. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded than hold so tightly to our belongings and to our reputation and to our pride that we will fight one another with it? Now, for this next illustration, I want all of you to just let go of your Bible, and I want you to hold your, your, your fists as tightly as you can for as long as you can. Can you hold your fists like this? No one's doing it. Only the front row people are doing it. This is a, this is a real invitation. I'm pulling a host way on y'all. I ain't even trying to get y'all to stand up and fight in the wrong direction, all right? 
I'm just trying to get you to stand, sit there and hold your fist as long as you can. Hold it. Come on now. Like somebody's trying to take something from you. You got it? Keep holding it. Don't let go because he's going to get at you next. Verse 41, he says, not just your, your, your physical safety, your personal injury, not just your personal property, but also your personal rights. And Jesus is going to hit us right where it hurts during corona. Y'all ready? Verse 41, and if anyone, you're still holding it, come on. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. All right, it's getting tiring now, isn't it? A little bit fatigued. You probably lasted about a minute. That's all you can hold on to, to just your fists. How long can you hold on to anything else? It's exhausting to live this way, isn't it? Just a minute of holding nothing but air and knuckles, we are exhausted. We're tired. Our forearms are starting to get tired. If you're doing it right, maybe you just flex a little bit. Your shoulders are getting a little bit tired. Right? At some point, this is going to get exhausting, and you're just going to want relief from this kind of life. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering, if only we would let go. But when we let go to the things that are actually ours, verse 41 is going to invite us into something different, command us into something different. He says, again, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is personal rights. This, this word here for forces you is um, a military term. So we know this um, because that's the actual Greek word. But also, if you think about the culture in which Jesus is writing these things, and he's now about to, again, put into his mind the way that he lived this out, so that it would have been normal for the Romans to go to the Jews and force them to carry their stuff. It would have been normal for, for the Roman soldier to look at a Jewish person and go, hey, you, I want you to carry this for the next mile. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you're in the middle of. Doesn't matter what you have the right to. Doesn't matter at all. Because a Roman can come to you and go, hey, I need you to carry my stuff for the next mile. And he's going to force you to do it. Doesn't matter what your rights are. The government says so, you do it. And so he, he's saying, if you are forced to walk one mile, don't just do the bare minimum. Bless them and go the extra mile. Don't live with such a, a, a life that is, that is holding on to our rights and to the things that we want or our freedoms or whatever it may be um, to the expense of blessing those that ask you or require you or force you to do something that you don't want to do. This hits us. I giggled. I'm going to tell you right now. I giggled all throughout this week when I came to this point and I realized this is a military word for the, G for the Jews back then. This would have been scandalous for them because all of a sudden they're they're being, they're being told by Jesus, this, this new rabbi, the Messiah, to, to truly like, like just lean into the scandal. Lean into public shame of helping your political enemy. And if that's not a word for us today, I don't know what is. Jesus calls for them to go even further than what they require. And so your rights aren't something to be held in a tight fist. Instead, they, they, we, we need to be expectant to lay them down for the blessings of others. You have the right to not walk the extra mile. And if you can't see where this is, you have the right to not wear a mask in public. But will we lay down our rights when the government asks us to do something? Oh, y'all get mad at me now. 
Will we lay down those rights and, get, and go the extra mile for the sake of our government, but also for the sake of our neighbor? Oh, man, I can see it. Y'all starting to get sweaty palms. Y'all about to do this thing. You ready to start getting it? You holding knuckles for a different reason, to which I say here. Come on over here. Put me on blast on Facebook over here. Put a little Twitter juice over here, whatever it is. I don't even know what Twitter juice is. I just made that up. Which is why you can do it, because it doesn't mean anything. Right? Not only our personal rights, not our personal property, our personal injury, but he's going to go for the fourth and final illustration, but our personal stuff, our possessions. Look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, we live with clenched fists, do we not? And God is inviting us to live with open hands in the kingdom that we would not withhold our resources. I don't know about you, but I make a million excuses here for not giving to the one who begs or borrows. I'm making a million excuses to to not be generous. They don't deserve it. They will swindle it. And I usually add, just like everything else in their life, like I know their life. They'll misuse it. They'll take advantage of me. And yes, that's all true. That's the kind of life that Jesus actually lived, the one where we take advantage of him. The one where we take advantage of his kindness, of his generosity, of his resources. We swindle them, do we not? Of course we do. So no wonder he's inviting us, commanding us to give to those who beg, lend to those who need to borrow we need to adopt, or adopt not just a posture of trust for divine justice, but also a posture of generosity, an open heart towards those that are around us. In fact, 1 John 3 would say this about our posture amongst everyone else around us. 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word but, or, or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is about showing that we truly understand the gospel. And that's what these illustrations all point to when Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil. You see, we cannot live that way while we also live on eye for an eye, fracture for fracture, with limited vengeance. It eliminates for us the posture of blessing. That's what the law does. That's what retributive justice does. It it not just limits vengeance, it eliminates generosity. Because we're always thinking about what was taken from me. We're always thinking about what that person could have done better. We're always thinking about this person right here. Not at all about how Jesus invites us to live through a different lens. Not through payback not through retribution, but through redemption. That we would not resist the one who is evil. Jesus is commanding us to trust God to take vengeance, to do what is right in his time. But we don't do that. We want what is right in our time according to our view, not according to his time in his view. And that's a challenge for us. But may we be reminded that Jesus is the judge May we be reminded of God's word in Romans 12, verse 19. It says, beloved, never avenge yourself. You can't be an avenger for justice in the kingdom of God. Instead, we must be people that trust God. Look at what it says. Vengeance, uh, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to him. 
Don't take up what is not yours to begin with. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do we trust him at his word? Do we trust him when he says, I will repay? I will take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. You have have no reason to seize that which is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What does God want for us in all these things? What is he commanding and inviting for the people that want to flourish in the kingdom of God? Nothing less than your entire life. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to be adapted to his heart. You see, God cares more about our hearts being molded into his heart than us keeping what we think is ours. The person who, again, holds tightly to payback or to justice will not flourish in the kingdom of God because it is not a kingdom of retribution, but it is a kingdom of redemption. A place where, again, 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm just, I'm just peppering you with these verses, not like to show you that I know stuff, but to show you it's all over the place. 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. How is it that God would expect his people to live with such scandalous lives? How would he expect us to live with such open hands to our own, our own protection? To our own understanding of justice? How can he expect these things, command us to live this way? I'll tell you how. Because he did it. You see, Jesus fulfills Truly, Jesus fulfilled what he expects his followers to find in the kingdom. Jesus wants his followers to not try to do these things, but to be the kind of people who truly believe the gospel. You and I will never even attempt to live this way if we don't first understand and be humbled by our own sin. That's why we do confession and assurance most weeks, because we need to be humbled by our posture before a holy and righteous God. That we sin again and again, falling short again and again, only to find grace even more. We must be humbled by our own sin, realizing that our own guilt before a holy God, and he has not paid retribution to us. He has not paid us back for the things that we've done to him. No, he paid his son. He repaid our offense to God. He put that on Jesus. That's where the wrath of God landed for the sins of all who would believe. So it's no wonder that he's inviting us not to retribution, but truly to believe in redemption. Redemption by the blood of Jesus, a purchasing of us by the final payment made on the cross. Jesus wants us to adopt his heart, but what is his heart? Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung to, to be powered through or gritted through. He emptied himself, gave himself up, gave up the safety and the security of heaven to run into the dark and dangerous world where he knew that we would put him to death. That was not a surprise to him. That's the very purpose that he came. He knew that we would stick him on a cross, that we would betray him, desert him, spit on him. He knew 700 years before he came, Isaiah 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who will pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace 
and spitting. Do you see why he can require these things of us? Because he, above all people, didn't deserve these things and yet condescended to earth and lived in such a way that he fulfilled these things on our behalf and now invites us to love the world like he loved us. Not just in Isaiah 50, but look at what 1 Peter 2 talks about. 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friend, will you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? Or will we cling to justice and vengeance? We cannot cling to justice and vengeance upon our own timing, with our own views, with our own limited perspective, and at the same time live a life that is generous and flourishes in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus, the creator and king of the universe, took the form of a servant, humbling himself in obedience by living as a vagabond, as a homeless dude, for as long as he did. And he did so that he would, he would truly invite those that had no spiritual home to be his family. To be brought into the Father's house where we would not only just be given food, but vats of God's mercy. Feasting upon God's kindness and grace. So I ask you, how then shall we live in light of a God who has done these things for us? How then can we, can we continue to, to grasp on to things that, yes, we have the right to, but God is calling us to give up those rights of offense, of the things that come against us, of injury? Yes, we have the right to it, but will we live in such a way that it's open-handed and trusting ourselves to the one who will do right, who judges Justly, how then shall we live? God is calling us to remind ourselves of this main thing. As long as we are focused on what others have taken from us, personal injury, personal honor, personal belongings, personal rights, personal possessions, you will not flourish in the kingdom of God. I have yet to find a person that clings closely to these things and still enjoys Jesus. Instead, a person that enjoys the ways of Jesus, of sacrifice, of dying to ourself, must live in a way that has open-handed posture to all things, much less our pride and our reputation, all things, and trusting ourselves to him who judges justly, just as Peter said. The person who flourishes in the kingdom does not seek payback, isn't focused on what they have lost or what they own or what they're owed, but instead on what they have gained in Christ. They have gained a God who promises to do what is right in the end. He has promised to do what is right in the end over all things, which takes us out of the place of judge, jury, and executioner. That, that is God's place, so we don't have to bear that burden anymore. And may we flourish now in God's kingdom by understanding that we have nothing except that which God has given us. That we are those who have injured Jesus. We are those who plucked out his beard. We are those uh, who, who struck his back. We are those who spat on him, injured him, betrayed him, deserted him, and ultimately nailed him to the cross. We are those who kept him on the cross by continuing to sin even now knowing this good news. We are those which he did not pay us back for our wrongdoing, but instead redeemed us, not just from thinking that way, but from living that way in the here and now, not just eternally, but now. 
May we flourish realizing our deep debt to God for which he has freely forgiven us in Jesus because only then will we see the good news that is not getting payback. Only then will we see that not getting payback, because it feels good, does it not? It feels good to get a little payback every once in a while, but it's better to not get that payback in the here and now and trusting our God who will get payback in the end. Probably not in the way that we want. I remember early on in ministry, there were some injustices uh, that I remember suffering, um, both me personally and someone else. And I, I a bit found myself thinking and feeling a lot like Jonah. But there was these injustices and that, and that, and that these things need to be, get payback. And, 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 and you know what? I'll be your avenger. I'll be the person that says what no one else will say. I remember early on in ministry thinking those things and then walking away from that area of ministry some 15, 20, 17 years ago now. I remember walking away from that and, you know, sitting on outside of the city like Jonah and realizing one thing, God will forgive my enemies. God has forgiven my enemies. And even better, I'm his enemy. I was his enemy. And he's forgiven me. So it's no wonder that I can give up the ways of Jonah, give up the way of the avenger, and instead adopt the posture of humility, of laying down the things that I have a claim to, and instead following and trusting Jesus for all these things and much more. Jesus' invitation for us is to give up what is right. Give up what we have a right to. And instead entrust ourselves to the one who will judge justly. And trust ourselves to the one who promises to give vengeance in his time and in his way. Friends, may we fall headlong into the vat of God's love, grace, and mercy for sinners, which is us, that we might wake up anew each day longing for ways in which we can follow Jesus out of the safety of scorekeeping, out of the, out of the, the predictability of tit for tat, out of, out of the, the, what, we, what we want to do and have transactional relationships. He is rescuing us from those types of things of self-righteousness, of living by our own rules, and into the wonder of generous living towards God and towards people because we know that God has loved us in the same way, forgiving sinners again and again and again. We're going to enter into communion here in just a moment. That's what we remember. We remember when we come together, it says proclaim the Lord's death when we do communion. So when we do communion, we're going to get our kids in just a moment. I'm going to pray. You're going to get your kids. And we're going to come back and we're going to sing a song. And we're going to have all that communion has to offer us. When we do that, we are remembering that we are the ones that truly struck Jesus. And that God has turned the other cheek. And not only that, but come out for us, redeemed us, and rescued us the kind of living that's retributive instead of redemptive. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you have come for us. We're also a little hesitant to live like you lived. If we're real, if we're real candid and honest, this just sounds really difficult. Not just difficult, impossible. And it is impossible for those who have not been remade in their spirit, remade in their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is impossible stuff without that first. And so for those that are hearing this and going, I would never, I can't ever, maybe it's time to go back to the gospel and remember what you've done 
for us. That you didn't treat us eye for eye. You didn't take fracture for fracture. You didn't do tooth for tooth. You didn't score keep. Instead, you threw away the scorebook and said, you know, that will never work for you. And, I, and I'm okay with that. I'm gonna, it's never going to work for me. And so there's got to be something greater than that sort of scorecard. That Jesus would come, die for sinners, bring them out of the grave so they can walk in the newness of life that we talk about with baptism. Oh, help us, Holy Spirit, to live in this way, to truly be people of the kingdom, to establish your kingdom here on the earth. Because you're invite us to pray on earth as it is in heaven through the Sermon on the Mount. And so, Lord, help us establish your kingdom. Would you establish your kingdom in our own heart when we're done wrong, when we're offended, when we're insulted, when someone pushes us out, when someone unfairly judges us, Lord, remember, help us remember how you have forgiven us. Help us remember how you have overlooked the offense in us. Help us remember how we are justified by our Father. And so therefore, you, how much more will you justify us before people? We don't have to be the avenger of our own pride or our own dignity. No, you've done that on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we enter into a point of communion, help us remember these things. We love you. We can't do this without you. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.